Hi, this is Chris Sorensen. Welcome to Brookville Road Community Church Podcast. If you haven't done so already, please take a moment to check out our website at brookvilleroad.cc for all the latest information about what's going on at Community Church. I hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in becoming a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. So uh, this morning, I want to start out by sharing with you about my favorite all-time Christmas movie, and it's, it's A Wonderful Life, right? It stars Jimmy Stewart as George Bailey, and uh, it's a great story, a great family movie, and it, it really sounds like it when I describe the, how the movie starts. It's about George Bailey, who's going through a difficult time and is considering ending his own life. Doesn't that sound like a great holiday, you know, family classic right there? And I'm going to tell you what happens next, and you might say, well, spoiler alert, but that movie has been out for 75 years, so you had a minute to see it on your own, but here's what happens. An angel, as, as George is standing there on, on the bridge, kind of thinking about what to do next, an angel appears and gives George a chance to see what the world would have been like if he had never been born. Now, in lots of ways, what's interesting is as George sees the world uh, without him, the world without George Bailey is a, an awful lot like the world with George Bailey. It's, it's the same people and the same big events happen. But what's different is that George is not there to interact with the people. George is not there in all of those events. And so in the movie... George's rival is this man, uh, he's this old banker named Mr. Potter. Now, Mr. Potter is kind of the villain hanging over the entire story. I, I, I say he's the villain, I suppose, if like you're Milton Friedman, he's the hero of the story, but it's just a little economics joke. And, and in the story, with George gone, Mr. Potter's influence goes way up. And in a lot of ways, we learn, and George learns, the meaning and significance of George's life. Because we see what happens when he's not there. Now, in many ways, that's what I want to do this morning as we look at the life of Jesus and compare and contrast his life with a man who is undeniably one of the central villains of Jesus's story. And he is a man that we meet in the beginning of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 1, we'll have it up on the, the, the screen here. You can follow along in your Bible. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Dun, 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 here comes the bad guy. Now, for Luke's original audience, they all knew the details of the biography of Caesar Augustus. There he is, right? He is unquestionably in Jesus' day the most famous person in the whole world, right? He has been the leader of the Roman Empire. And for Luke's original audience, as he is writing this story, it is clear that Caesar Augustus is part of Jesus' story. And not just in like the line that he, you know, declared that there's going to be this census. Luke goes on in Luke chapter 2 and really throughout the rest of his gospel to write the story of Jesus. It starts with the Christmas story, but he writes the story of Jesus in a way that is deeply subversive. And it has to do with contrasting Jesus and Caesar Augustus. Now, again, in Luke's day, Caesar Augustus is one of the most famous people in the whole world. Uh, Everybody knew the biographical details of his life. Our day and age, not, not quite so true anymore. For instance, I, did, I always thought, uh, until this week, I always thought that, like Caesar salad came from the Caesars, like that kind of dressing or whatever. Not true, has nothing to do with them. I was like, that's a hit to their reputation right there. It's happening, you, you know. But Caesar Augustus, 
if we're going to learn about this guy and we want to know something about him, we have to go into history. And I'm just going to prepare you on the front end of this message that we're going to dig really deep into a lot of history. And we're starting with like probably the most difficult part of it. We're going to look at a block of marble that was found in Priene, Turkey. It's called the Priene calendar uh, inscription. This is now in uh, the Berlin Museum. And this inscription comes from five to 10 years before Jesus was born. And as we dig into this, and we're not going to look at any more of these inscriptions in Greek and all that after this, but the reason we're doing this is because I think sometimes when we talk about history, there's this sense that like, oh, well, there's biblical history or there's church history, and then there's something else that is history. But what I want you to see is that, no, there's just history. Like, and the stories in this book like weave together with what's happening in history and influence and shape what's happening in, in all of history. And, and you're going to see that by looking at this inscription. So here, here's what it says. According, this, this uh, inscription comes about because the Roman government has issued a decree that they're going to restart when the new year is. They're going to start the year now going forward on September 23rd. And why are they going to start the calendar on September 23rd? It's because it's the birthday of Caesar Augustus. And I think that when we read this inscription, it gives us perspective on how Caesar was viewed at the time of Jesus. Now, here's what it says. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. Whereas providence has regulated our whole existence, has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving us Emperor Augustus, whom it has filled with strength for the welfare of men, who being sent to us and our descendants as savior and put an end to war and has set all things in order and given us peace. And they're laying on a little thick here, right? And whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times in surpassing all the benefactors who preceded him. And whereas finally the birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world, the beginning of good news concerning him. Therefore, let a new era begin from his birth. Now, there are lots of things that we see in that inscription. For instance, just look at the words that are used to describe Caesar. He is called our savior, right? Both for us and for our descendants. He's the one who brings an end to war. He's the guy who brings us peace. Caesar is the benefactor. Some of the, some of the philosophers in that day, the, the, the poets, they, they spoke of him as the benefactor of all humanity, And his birthday was the birthday of a God. Now, all of those details that sort of describe who Caesar is and what he's about, those are all interesting. But what I want you to especially notice is that the birthday of Caesar Augustus is called the beginning of the good news of the world. And those two words that we translate in English, good news, are actually a single Greek word, euangelion. And that word euangelion In Caesar's day, it was primarily a political word. So in the ancient world, euangelion, that's a a political word. But in our day, we, we think of it as more of a spiritual word because when we translate the word euangelion, we translate it as gospel. Right? So, so the, the, the gospel, the good news. And, and Caesar's birth is the beginning of good news, of the gospel for the whole world. 
Now, Bible commentator Tom Wright has talked about the meaning of the word gospel in the ancient world. And here's what he said in an interview with the Gospel Coalition. He he writes, in the Roman world, when a new emperor came to the throne, there had obviously been a time of uncertainty because somebody had just died, like the old emperor. Is there going to be chaos? Is society going to collapse? Are we going to have pirates ruling the seas? Are we going to have no food to eat? And the good news is we have an emperor and his name is such and such. So we're going to have justice and peace and prosperity. And isn't that great? And then he goes on to say, now, of course, most people in the Roman empire knew that was rubbish because it was just another old jumped up aristocrat who was going to do the same as the other ones had done before. But that was the rhetoric, okay? That was the message of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Now, in contrast to what we might call the gospel of Caesar Augustus, the gospel of Jesus is that the good news is that the crucified and risen Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, and therefore, he is Lord of the world. This is the message proclaimed by the angels to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. Here's what it says. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. There are those words. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, we're going to look more at what the angels said later on in the message. But when you see those, good, those words, good news, that's related to the Greek root word euangelion. The angels are announcing the gospel of Jesus. Now, the significance of the angels using this word gospel may be hard for us to appreciate because, again, we tend to think of the word gospel as a, a spiritual word that has to do with things like heaven and hell and life after we die. And while that is certainly part of the gospel, we must recognize that in Jesus's day, as Luke was writing his book, the word gospel primarily had to do with life on earth right now. And especially it had to do with who was in charge. And in Luke's day, it was Caesar Augustus. In Jesus's day, it was Caesar Augustus. Because Caesar Augustus led the Roman Empire for over 40 years. And during that time, he doubled it in size. And as he conquered new nations, he would send out his heralds announcing his gospel, the euangelion, telling him the good news of his rule. Now, if you lived in some area that Caesar had just conquered, you might not have thought it was good news. But here's the thing. Caesar didn't really care if you thought it was good, right? All he really cared about was that you understood that it was news in the sense that it was a fact. It was happening. And as a result of this information, there was now a new reality in the world. And that's what Caesar was telling people as he proclaimed his gospel. There's a new reality. Things are going to be different around here because I'm in charge. And you're going to have to make some changes to get in line with me and my gospel. This is what I was getting at earlier when I said that Luke is telling the Christmas story in a deeply subversive way. When his first readers see Luke use these words that the angel announced the gospel of Jesus, they knew there was already a gospel of Caesar out there. And so even if they weren't familiar with the story of Jesus and what's going to happen in his life, they knew that there's eventually going to be a showdown between Jesus and Caesar, or at least Caesar's representatives. Because in the ancient world, and really in the modern world too, you can't have two gospels. 
The gospel of Jesus and the gospel of Caesar are fundamentally incompatible because ultimately at the heart of any gospel is the question, who's in charge? Who Who are we going to follow? Will we follow Caesar or will we follow Jesus? Now, obviously, on a day like today, as we're gathered here in a church and as we're celebrating Christmas, it seems clear who most of us have chosen to follow. But even though Caesar Augustus has been dead for a long time, the spirit of his gospel is still alive today because the gospel of Caesar Augustus is all about power and status and self-serving luxury. And I think it's worth taking some time for us to try to explain the allure of why so many choose to follow his gospel even today. And for us to do that, I think we need to learn a little bit about Caesar's story. Now, here's the thing. Before Caesar Augustus was Caesar Augustus, he was born Octavian. He was born about 60 years before Jesus. He was born into a pretty well-off family. But the key thing about Octavian was his uncle. His uncle was Julius Caesar. He was the leader of the Roman armies. He was like a big guy. And then eventually, I mean, he wasn't just a Roman general leading the armies. He was in charge of all of Rome. But Julius Caesar never had a son. And so at some point in time when Octavian was growing up, Julius Caesar adopted his nephew as his legal heir and son. And this is going to be a big deal because when Octavian was a teenager, Julius Caesar was assassinated, right? Like we we kind of have heard about this, et tu brute, the Ides of March, this story. He gets assassinated by uh, people in the Roman Senate. And then there's this power struggle. It's kind of like what Tom Wright was talking about. Somebody is dead. And now like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to Rome? What's going to happen in this power vacuum? Well, there's all sorts of people jockeying for power. There's names that we sort of recognize but don't know all that much about, like people like Cicero and Mark Antony and Mark Antony and Cleopatra, you know, that that part of the story from history. And it looks like, in all likelihood, Mark Antony is going to be the guy who's going to be the next in line. But here's the thing. Nobody was really that worried that Octavian is much a threat because he's just a kid. So, but he was in another country when his uncle was assassinated, but he comes back and again, he's been adopted. He's the son. And so he's, he's sort of leading these like processionals and and these like celebrations, memorializing his adoptive father. And he decides that he's going to do, it sounds strange to us, but his uncle really loved like sports and athletics and those kinds of things. So he decides in his uncle's, his adopted father's memory, he's going to host uh, like a Roman Olympics, like kind of as a funeral memorial for, for, for his uncle. And so he invites people from, you know, athletes from all over the empire and they come to Rome. And as history records, Suetonius, uh, the Roman historian records this, as the Olympic, these Roman kind of funeral Olympics are getting kicked off, a star shows up in the sky and it's really bright and it shines for like a week during these, like, these games. And, and astronomers think it, it might have been a comet. There's some record of it even being seen in, in China. But, but they see this and people all over the empire are like, whoa, what's that? And what kind of comes out is that, oh, well, like, that is Julius Caesar. 
right? Because he was really popular with the people as a Roman general. I mean, with his fellow senators, not so much. They all killed him, right? But like with, with, with the people, it's like, oh, what a great man. He, he's risen to take his place with the gods. That's, that's his soul. That's who it is. Whether it was a star or a comet, Julius Caesar has become a god. Now, this is a huge moment in Roman history. Julius Caesar being considered a god. And it's really big for Octavian, too, because I want you to think about this. If Julius Caesar has become a god, and if Octavian is the son of Julius Caesar, then what does that make Octavian? He's the son of God. He's going to become Caesar, but he's the son of God. He's the son of the divine Julius Caesar. And here's the thing. Mark Antony was a much more experienced general. He was a much more well-regarded leader in that sense. But Octavian was a much better politician. And he knows how to use propaganda. And he knows how to sell a story and to do all of the little political games. And he says, hey, I'm the son of God. I'm the heir to Julius Caesar who has become God. And he begins to systematically eliminate all of his rivals. And he knows this, the coins of, of, of the ancient world were kind of like, I don't know, there's a version of social media sending out messages to everybody. And so there's a picture of Octavian. And then there's the, there's the star, there's the comment on the back of it. And it's uh, divine Julius. Like, so his uncle is, is divine that. And so again, it's sending a message. How how he relates to the one who has become a God. And then the next coin we have, this one is, says he's the son of God. All right. So he's sending out these messages about who he is. And over the next two decades, he eventually gets rid of everybody and he's in charge. And the Roman Senate comes to him and they acknowledge his leadership and they give him the title Caesar Augustus which means the exalted one. Now, as time went on, Caesar Augustus, he was able to expand his empire all the way from Great Britain to India. And you can imagine that as his power went up and up and up, and as the empire got bigger and bigger and bigger, it seemed to be proof that the gospel of Caesar, the good news of his reign was true. He really must be the son of God. Look what's happening. The ancient poet Horace wrote these words. You have put reins on sin and keep the people within the boundaries of right. You have wiped away our sins and revived the ancient virtues which made Rome great. And the fame and majesty of our empire is spread from the sun's bed in the west to the east. Virgil writes in the Aeneid, Augustus Caesar, the son of God, the savior of the human race, is to be honored as a God with sacrifice and hymns. Now, these are incredible claims. And when we think about this idea that Caesar Augustus was viewed as a son of God and was in a sense being worshiped, we need to understand what that looked like in their world. Because it wasn't like they were having these church services or religious services and everybody had to come together and, and like bow down and, and, and worship Caesar Augustus. No, it was, it was much more ubiquitous. It was part of every element of life. If you wanted to participate in society, you just had to follow and obey Caesar and give him honor. Throughout cities, there would be images of Caesar And you had to just bow down before the image or burn a pinch of incense in his honor. It was just like part of doing life. 
Just give a token nod to the emperor as God. Christians in that day were told, you don't even have to mean it. Just burn a pinch of incense. Just go through the motions. All you have to do is say Caesar is Lord and you can be part of all this prosperity. That's all you have to do. Just say Caesar is Lord. But of course, Christians knew that Jesus had said, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve two gospels. You can follow Caesar or you can follow Jesus, but there can only be one Lord. If Jesus is Lord, then that means Caesar is not. But on the other hand, if Caesar is Lord, then that means Jesus is not. And Luke understood this dynamic and we see it in his writing. Let's go back to Luke chapter two, verse nine and and read a little bit more of this account. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. And this euangelion, this gospel, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Then suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Now, if we really understand what Luke was getting at when he was writing these words, we will be astounded because you know what? There are so many different aspects for the Christmas story. And we're going to talk about them throughout uh, this season And there are moments that are really cute and cuddly. And the Hallmark Channel has, you know, like marketed them extensively. But when we see the Christmas story and we understand where Luke is coming from, we have to understand that something that is often overlooked is that the Christmas story is a story of a revolution. It's the launch of a divine conspiracy against Caesar Augustus. Because look at the words that are being used. Who's the savior? Jesus is the savior. Who's the one who brings peace? It's Jesus. Who is Lord? Christ is Lord. These are all terms that Caesar Augustus was claiming for himself. The gospel of Jesus is that Jesus is Lord. And again, if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. They cannot both be in charge. We cannot follow both of them. So then what does it look like for us to join the Jesus revolution and follow his leadership? Well, the apostle Paul provides some clarity when he writes in Philippians 2, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now I want you to think about those words as Paul announces what it means to 
follow the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Caesar is all about pursuing power and status and self-serving luxury. But the gospel of Jesus involves vulnerability, humility, and self-giving love. Vulnerability, humility, and self-giving love. And if we need further evidence of the differences between the two gospels of Caesar and Jesus... Let's just consider two of the best-known symbols of these two men. I want you to look at this picture. This is the obelisk of Monte Satorio. Now, 500 years before Augustus, this obelisk had been positioned outside a temple to the sun god Ra in Heliopolis by one of the pharaohs. Now, one of Augustus' greatest victories... Uh, during his time as the leader of the Roman Empire, was over his rival Mark Antony and Cleopatra in Egypt. So he he was in charge over Egypt. He considered himself a modern-day, like, pharaoh. And he decided he was going to take that obelisk back to Rome. Now, how do you move something enormous like that? Because not counting the base, it's 71 feet tall and weighed over 200 tons. Well, when you have power and status... Things just happen. And so Caesar Augustus commissions the building of a special obelisk ship. And he has the thing torn down. And he has it shipped back to him in Rome. Then he placed a bronze globe on top of the obelisk. He set up a foundation. And that obelisk was over 110 feet tall. He set it up in one of the most significant areas of the city of Rome, near the Pantheon. He set it up close to the altar of peace that he had constructed in honor of the peace he himself had brought to Rome. Augustus then set up the obelisk as a pointer of a massive sundial, right? Uh, you, You might have forgotten about how sundials work, but they can reckon the time, month, and season. And and he set this up to provide uh, the time, month, and season for the entire city of Rome. This is a move that was, again, all about establishing Caesar's power and status within the people. I mean, this thing stood up high, and anyone in the city could see it and know who was in charge. You could literally set your watch to it, as it were. Furthermore, Caesar set up the shadow of the obelisk, so that it would fall perfectly pointing to the dead center of the altar of peace on a very specific day of the year, September 23rd. Do you remember the significance of that day? It's his birthday. What sort of message is Augustus sending? It seems to me that with his obelisk, he's not so subtly sending a symbolic message. Because of my great power, when I'm glorified, when I'm lifted up, my pe- my Power brings the people peace. That's my symbol. My birth brings the people peace. Now let's keep Augustus and his obelisk in mind as we consider Jesus' symbol. Because instead of an obelisk, Jesus has a cross. Let's consider Jesus' words to Philip and Andrew on Palm Sunday in John chapter 12. Pastor Chris referenced this story a few weeks ago, but coming on the heels of Palm Sunday, Jesus has been hailed as the king, as the Messiah. The people are are comparing him to David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in a private moment, Jesus says in verse 23, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And surely Philip and Andrew and the other disciples were like, yes, We know what happens when a leader is glorified. 
Yeah, it might look different for Jesus than it did for Caesar, but he's about to be glorified. And you know, I mean, just for what it matters for those guys, if the leader is glorified, we get to be glorified with him, right? Like we get to reign with him. But Jesus is about to use his power and be glorified in a way that the disciples were not expecting. Again, Jesus' symbol isn't an obelisk, it's, it's a cross. He told his disciples in verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And just in case we, we don't get what he's talking about there, John very helpfully tells us in the next verse, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Augustus brought peace by using his power to glorify himself. Jesus brought peace by using his power to sacrifice himself. That's the symbol. The second symbol I want us to look at has to do with communion. We sometimes call communion the Lord's Supper, and I think it might be the most famous meal in all of human history. But you should know that in his day, Caesar Augustus had a meal that he was pretty famous for as well. The historian Suetonius tells us about a private banquet that Caesar had that he called the Feast of the Divine Twelve. And he invited some of the most influential men and women in the Roman Empire to come to a special banquet that he was going to have. And he said, this is a costume party. I want you to dress up like the gods and goddesses of the Greek and Roman pantheon of of our mythology. And who, who was Caesar Augustus? Well, he was Apollo. He was the God of the sun and he hosted this big banquet and everyone had heard about it. And it was a time of just incredible, like lavish food, the best of the food and drink that Rome had to offer. And as much as of of it as they could possibly eat. I I mean, I didn't share this in first service. I, I don't know why, but like they had a room called the vomitorium. I don't know if I need like, like, I don't know if the English kind of translates there what this room was for, but it was like, just keep eating and then take care of it and come back and eat some more. And it was like all about saying, this is my gospel. This is what I can provide for you. If you stay with me and if you follow me, this is what I can give you. You too can indulge yourself in self-serving luxury, the likes of which no one on earth is experiencing. This is, this is the, my meal. This is my banquet. Now, the only problem with this feast was that it was held in a time of great famine and a food shortage in the Roman Empire. So the leaders get all this stuff. And the people of Rome complained with some irony, the gods have gobbled up all the grain. But then... That's what the Roman gods were like. They were selfish and self-serving. In contrast, Jesus, when he hosted his most famous meal, the Passover, it represented his own gospel. And he wasn't self-serving. He was self-giving. In fact, he, at the beginning of the meal, wrapped a towel around his waist, taking the role of a servant, and he washed the feet of his disciples, including the disciple who would betray him and the disciple who would deny him. Jesus was about to make the ultimate sacrifice and the Passover meal was his way of communicating to his disciples and to all of us what he thought was really important. 
as he wrote this book, Luke couldn't have known for sure which gospel was going to win out. It sure seemed at the time of his writing that the gospel of Jesus had been confined to a relatively small and insignificant part of the world. And it seemed like Rome and the gospel of Caesar was destined to triumph. But of course, that all changed because Jesus triumphed over the grave. And if you can defeat death, then you can certainly defeat Caesar. And I believe the fact that Luke took time to carefully write down his account in the way that he did showed that he had faith that Jesus and the gospel of Jesus would triumph. And of course, his faith was vindicated. At this point, basically the only evidence that we have for the power of the gospel of Caesar is a bunch of old buildings and sculptures. But when it comes to the gospel of Jesus, we have a history of changed lives. Through the centuries, Christians have seen people in need and have helped them because we were following the example of Jesus. And as a result, society has changed. Christians created hospitals and libraries and universities. Thousands of philanthropic organizations exist because of people's faith in Jesus. We just participated in Operation Christmas Child with an organization called Samaritan's Purse, but beyond what they do with shoeboxes and gifts at Christmas time, they are one of the largest relief providers after disasters and tragedies in the entire world. Christian organizations like the Hope Center just down the street are heading up efforts to end human trafficking and minister to its victims. And they do it in the name of Jesus because we're part of his gospel. When I think about the legacy of the gospel of Jesus, I think the gospel of Jesus looks like him. It takes risks and makes sacrifices because that's what Jesus did. He took risks. He made sacrifices. Yes, the gospel of Jesus will always have this spiritual element. And we need to present people with a plan of salvation so that they can put their trust in Jesus and go to heaven and be saved. But the gospel isn't just about what happens someday after we die. It's about what we do here on earth right now in Jesus' name. In Luke 22, after communion, We read that there was a dispute among the disciples about who was the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. I can't help but think that as Luke wrote those words about the kings of the Gentiles and the reality that Jesus was about to be killed by one of Caesar's representatives. I wonder if he was thinking about Caesar Augustus. Yes, Caesar Augustus was dead by the time of Jesus's crucifixion, but his son, Caesar Tiberius, was on the throne. But Luke knew that the Caesars were still promoting their gospel. And they were still being held up by society as the benefactors of all humanity. But Luke is asking us this subversive question of who is really our benefactor? Who is really our savior? Who is really our Lord? Is it Caesar or is it Jesus? Who are we going to follow? Whose gospel is really good news? Caesar tells us that success in life is all about pursuing power and status and self-serving luxury. 
And we still see that all around us today. But Jesus calls us to a life of vulnerability and humility and self-giving love. This year, as we celebrate Christmas, are we celebrating self-serving luxury or self-giving love? This Christmas, we need to remember the words of Luke's friend, Paul, who said, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love for you to join us at one of our weekend worship services. For service times and information about BRCC, be sure to check out brookvilleroad.cc. God bless you.